Please turn with me to Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to finish up the second half of the Beatitudes this morning, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Several years ago, there was a study done by Psychology Today, a survey they did of their readers, and they asked this question, what is happiness and how do we obtain it? What is happiness and how do we obtain it? One man responded about his personal happiness like this. He said, I don't know if I'm happy. I filled out the questionnaire. I think I'm happy. Please verify. How's that for the epitome of uncertainty? Uh, What was interesting to me about this survey is that very few of the factors that we normally associate with happiness actually had any correlation. There was not a correlation between pleasure and happiness. There was not a correlation between wealth and happiness. In other words, there were wealthy people who were very happy. There were wealthy people who were unhappy. There were poor people who were happy, and there were poor people who were unhappy. To me, the message that came through from this survey was, you can pursue happiness, but there's no guarantee that you will actually achieve it. You won't necessarily find it. On the other hand, You can pursue the blessing of God, and God guarantees that if you follow his pathway, you will experience his blessing. He promises you will not be disappointed. If you live life the way that he says life works, you will experience the blessing of God. Now, as we begin this study of the Beatitudes last week, we said this word blessing is not a word that we normally use in our language day-to-day with one another. What does it mean? Uh, And I illustrated it for you, or tried to explain it through an illustration, This is a picture from uh, the Greek island of Cyprus. And years ago, this Greek island of Cyprus was described by the islanders and by writers as uh, makarios, or blessed. And the idea was that in the mind of the islanders, they didn't need to leave the island to experience a full and a rich life. In other words, everything that they needed for a rich and full and satisfying life was contained on the island. They were, in that sense, self-contained, satisfied, blessed. And that's what Jesus means by this word blessed here. It means you don't really have to look outside of what you currently experience to have a rich and a full and a satisfying life. You're self-contained. All that you need for life, you've experienced from God. Blessed are those who follow God's pathway. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Beatitudes right at the beginning, in a sense, give you a framework for living life the way that God has designed it. I want us us to begin by reading together again in verse 3 through verse 12. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what I hope you began to see last week as we started through the Beatitudes is that there's actually a progression. These are not eight random ideas that Jesus threw out. There's actually a progression. It begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who recognize 
that they're spiritually impoverished, that they come to God with empty hands. They're not offering anything to God. They're coming with empty hands, needing to to receive from God. That's the beginning point. That is, in a sense, the, the very humbling point of the gospel. God doesn't need us to come with all of our goodness, with all of our works, all of our own righteousness. He needs us to come as beggars, receiving the righteousness that he provides us through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we receive life from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, blessed are those who see life as God sees life. They mourn over their own sin. They mourn over the sin of the world. They begin to see themselves and all of the world the way that God sees the world. And as a result, they begin to respond to others differently. They can respond in meekness. Because that they, know, they know that they have an inheritance with God that lasts forever. They're beginning to see life as God sees life. They're seeing Life now in light of eternity. How do we do that? How do we experience that transformation? Well, by pursuing his righteousness above all things. That's where the strength comes. The results, I think, are in the final four Beatitudes that we're going to look at this morning. But what I hope that you saw is not just the progression, but how radically unexpected these Beatitudes were. The disciples had gathered around Jesus and they had left everything behind. They had left, uh, for some of them, family. They had left their their jobs and their occupations. They had left all of their uh, means of making wealth for the future because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed one who's going to bring in the kingdom. They had great kingdom expectations. If we tie into Jesus, we're going to experience God's best. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. And let me tell you what blessing my best is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He totally turns their world upside down as he lays out for them these eight Beatitudes, which are not eight different people, but a different way of life, a different way of living. So let's pick up with the fifth Beatitude in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Remember that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. And so scripture for them is the Old Testament. That's what they're thinking of. And in the Old Testament, there were several ideas that were closely related about the character of God. There was uh, the grace of God, that he gives us what we don't deserve. There was um, the loyal love of God, the, the hesed. You've probably heard that word used in sermons before, that God in his loving kindness, as it's normally translated, uh, never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's always loyal to us. And also the compassion of God, which came from an idea of, of God being deeply moved with pity. That's probably the idea closely, most closely associated with what Jesus is talking about in terms of mercy. Okay, it, it is a deep-rooted feeling, mercy, Martin Lloyd-Jones once described it like this. He said, grace is associated with men in their sin, mercy with men in their misery. Mercy is a sense of pity and a desire to relieve suffering. In other words, it's, it's a feeling that is so deep that it moves you to action. It's seeing someone in a vulnerable position and not ignoring that vulnerability or ignoring that need or taking advantage of that vulnerability and need, but actually moving to alleviate that vulnerability and need, the suffering. It's pity that moves to action. Probably the best New Testament illustration of this is the Good Samaritan. Uh, I, I know you're all familiar with the story, so we won't read the whole thing again. 
But you remember that a priest comes by and sees the man who's been robbed and beaten. A Levite comes by and sees the man who's been robbed and beaten. And certainly they were moved at some level. There, There had to be some compassion within them, some sense of sadness. But it wasn't nearly enough to cause them to stop their journey and inconvenience themselves with helping this man for whatever reason. Jesus doesn't tell us. But they did not have mercy. On the other hand, the Samaritan is moved so deeply that he stops his own journey, bandages the man's wounds, puts him on his own donkey, walks the rest of the journey, and pays for the man to be taken care of until he is better. That's mercy, being moved so deeply that we act to relieve the sufferings of others. One of the greatest Old Testament illustrations of this is from the life of Joseph. I want you to turn, you can keep your, hold your place here in Matthew 5 and turn back to Genesis chapter 43. Again, remember the story of Joseph? He was shown no mercy by his brothers. He was thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt. He, he serves as a, a slave, falsely accused, and then he serves time in prison. And then miraculously, God rescues him out of prison. And in a day, he's exalted to a place of power, second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And he's the man, because of his wisdom, who is providing food to sustain people throughout the, the ancient Near East. He's giving their, them food. They're coming to him. There's famine everywhere. There's starvation everywhere. It's even affected his family. We're up in Palestine, and they come down seeking food. They don't know that they're coming to their brother that they've sold into slavery, but they're coming down to be rescued. They're in a desperate position. And they come down as beggars, needing sustenance. Notice how Joseph responds to them. Chapter 43, verse 26. It says, When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand, that is, the brothers. And they bowed to the ground before him, not knowing who he was. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out of there, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. It's mercy. They're in a vulnerable position, Joseph could retaliate. He knows who they are and they don't know who he is. He is in a position of power over them. They are in a position of need. But rather than taking advantage of the power that he has over them to crush them, to retaliate, to get vengeance, instead he alleviates their need because he's so deeply moved with compassion. He longs for reconciliation. He longs for restoration. That's mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That's how God acts toward us. That's the essence of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
Even when we were in a place of vulnerability where we had nothing to offer him, he made us alive together with Christ. That's why Joseph serves as one of the great types or illustrations of Christ himself. Because Jesus, looking down upon us, just like Joseph looking upon his brothers, he sees us in a vulnerable condition, dead in our transgressions, not able to lift ourselves into life, and yet God, being rich in his mercy, gave us Jesus. And so the moment that you say, God, thank you for your mercy, I believe what Jesus has to offer. Thank you for having him die on the cross for my sins. I accept life from him. The moment that you do that, all the debt that you have of sin is removed forever. And you have life that lasts forever and you have a relationship with a God who is loyal in his love and who will never leave you and who will never forsake you. And he's not asking you to bring anything to that relationship, so to speak. He's asking you to receive. That's the very nature of God. If you look throughout these Beatitudes, what Jesus is saying is, in essence, this is what God is like and this is what God wants you to be like. So blessed are the merciful because mercy is an attribute of God. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And Jesus is not saying that if you don't show mercy, you can't have eternal life. It's not... Believe and also show mercy, and if you don't show mercy, you won't have eternal life. He's saying, no, your life will be evaluated. As a believer in Jesus Christ, freely having received eternal life, your life will be evaluated someday. Did you live like God? Did you imitate God? Did you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called? That time when you experienced that evaluation, did you as a believer in Jesus Christ reflect the image and the nature, the character of Christ to the world? That time of evaluation is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or worthless. Did we reflect the character of Christ or did we not? And the basis of that evaluation will be, in part, did we show mercy because God is merciful? James picks up this theme, chapter 2. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And remember in the context, James is talking specifically about our judgment of the poor. Those who are vulnerable, those who are needy, do we show distinctions and give priority to the one who is wealthy and look down upon the one who is poor and needy and vulnerable? He says our evaluation will be based in part upon how we evaluate others and how we treat others. Jesus picks up this theme a little later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Were you merciful? It's pretty motivating, isn't it? (laughs) It is for me. Someday I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ. He's going to say, Did you reflect my character? Do you remember how merciful I was to you? When you were absolutely desperate in your sin... You were dead in your transgressions, and I reached down and I rescued you. Did you look at others similarly? And our lives will be evaluated like that. That's very motivating for me. Because I don't think I'm always very merciful, and I say to myself, okay, Jesus, but how? I I want to, but but how? How do do I become merciful? Well, mercy is like a muscle. It's the mercy muscle, right? Okay, you got to exercise it. Character qualities grow through practice, through use. 
We're born into this world not merciful. This is not an innate characteristic. We are born wanting justice for others and mercy for ourselves. If you have young children, you see this every day, right? They are quick to rat out brother or sister, but very slow to confess, very quick to rationalize that they did not have a part. They're not responsible, but their brother and sister are absolutely and completely responsible for all of the woes and terrible things that have transpired within the house. They want justice, right? Justice. We have this very keen sense of justice that we're born with for others, but not for ourselves. We're not born merciful people. And so we've got to practice mercy. We have to train ourselves to be merciful. Parents, we have to train our children to be merciful. We have to train them to think about how the other person would feel. Imagine, we say to our kids, if you were in that situation, how would you feel? How would you want to be treated? We're training them to begin to empathize, to think of another person. Let me give you a scenario. Put yourself in this scenario. Imagine that you're uh, taking a trip this afternoon and you're driving through Houston. And as you stop at a stoplight in downtown Houston, there's a man there standing with a sign and it says, we'll work for food. What comes into your mind? You don't, you don't have to holler it out because I'll just, I'll confess what comes in my mind and I know it's in your mind too because you're just like me, okay? You see the sign, it says, we'll work for food and you say to yourself, yeah, right. You don't want to work. You just want me to give you cash but you probably could work. You, you know, you're standing on the street corner. You're, you can stand all day in the heat of Houston summertime, and, and, and you're strong enough to do that. You could be working. You don't want to work. You just want me to give you money. I, that is the, oh, that's the innate response in my heart. It's not mercy. It is judgment. It's justice. That's, that's just what comes out of me, and I have to back up so that that doesn't bleed onto my children, right? And think differently. First of all, maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe, maybe he really would like to work for food. Maybe. I don't know, do I? I don't know. I don't know that man. Maybe, maybe I'm right. Maybe he doesn't really want to work for food. He just wants to stand on the corner and beg. What transpired in this man's life to get him to the point that he has so little dignity that he'd rather, he could work, but he'd rather stand on the corner of a street with a cardboard sign that says, we'll work for food. Well, that sure didn't happen in my life. And it changes my whole perspective. When I was living in, in Dallas, when I was going to seminary, I, ha- I had these confrontations all the time. It happened all the time. People constantly coming up asking for money and one of the things that I did because I I didn't want to give cash is I would start to put uh, McDonald's gift certificates in my pocket so that I wouldn't judge because I really didn't know but I wanted to do something and I also didn't want my heart to grow hard I wanted to be merciful we could train ourselves and we have to train parents we have to train our children think differently how would you feel if you were in that position Blessed are the merciful, because they will receive mercy. Jesus goes on, if you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5, 
the sixth beatitude. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. That word for pure means, uh, literally, it's clean. It's the word from which we get uh, catharsis, cleansing. Blessed are the pure in heart. In Jesus' day, he had a real issue that he had to address, which was uh, the spiritual leaders were not pure in heart. Those who were to be an example to the flock, you know, as Paul was, as he said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Be like me as I try to be like God. Well, those who were spiritual leaders, the shepherds, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, the priesthood, they were dead inside. Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. Things looked wonderful on the outside, but on the inside there was absolutely no life. There was nothing to imitate. The, the cup was, was cleansed on the outside, but it was filthy within. And these were the ones who were to be a model of what God was like. They were not pure in heart. The external did not correspond to the internal. There was hypocrisy. They were playing a part. They were greedy and self-centered. And Jesus says, no, blessed are those who are pure in heart. The inside corresponds to the outside. Things are the same. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. And he's not saying, blessed are the sinless. That's impossible. No man or woman is sinless. He's not saying, blessed are the sinless, but blessed are those whose hearts are cleansed and whose hearts are pure. When they do sin, they quickly confess. Probably one of the greatest illustrations of this is the life of David. David was known as a man after God's own heart, right? A man after God's own heart, but he had huge failure in his life. He was still a man after God's own heart because when the Spirit came and convicted him of sin, boy, he confessed just like that because he wanted to be restored to intimacy with the Father. In that sense, he was a man who was pure in heart. Keep your place again here in the sermon in Matthew 5 and turn back to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. Verse 6, David, after his incredible failure, his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah, is confronted with his sin and he writes this psalm as a response to his conviction of sin. Chapter 51, verse 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, a purity of heart, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, cleanse me. Cleanse me. What it means to be pure in heart is that we practice listening to the voice of the Spirit. And when he speaks, we're quick to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a blessing for these people. He says, blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. Wow, what does that mean? God is invisible, is he not? We're told that throughout scripture. No man has seen God or can see God. What could it possibly mean to see the invisible God? I want you to turn back to the Sermon on the Mount with me again. And there's a pattern. 
throughout this sermon, which is condition and then reward. Condition, reward. Condition, reward. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is an emphasis on reward that's often overlooked. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 46. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? What is the reward? What is the payment back? Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And there is a reward that God offers. The Father in heaven does offer reward. Chapter 6, verse 2, end of the verse, he says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. 6, 4, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. End of verse 6, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 16, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 18, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verses 19 through 21, treasure, 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 reward, reward, reward. Do you see the theme? Sermon on the Mount is saying, God is offering you the absolute best. Will you believe him that this is the way that life works and go after it and get the absolute best that life has to offer? Because God promises you, you will not be disappointed if you seek after the reward that he offers. And he says to those who are pure in heart, you will see God. What I think he means by that is that your capacity to appreciate God will be expanded. You see, throughout Scripture, God revealed himself more clearly to some than to others. Moses had a burning bush. Nobody else had the burning bush, just Moses. He's the only one standing there. The only one who saw it, the only one who got to write about it. I'd like a burning bush, right? I haven't had one yet. But God revealed himself more clearly to Moses than to others. He revealed himself to Samuel. In Jesus' day, he revealed himself to to Anna, prophetess, and to Simeon. And Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him you will understand and appreciate more of the living God. You'll see God. You'll, you'll understand and appreciate more of the living God. I think sometimes we don't even know what we're missing. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Uh, imagine that you are um, in a relay race. You're running in a relay race. It's a mile relay. You need to run a quarter mile. You're the second runner. First runner busts out of the blocks and takes a lead, gets a comfortable margin for your team. And so you see that comfortable margin, and as you take the baton and you run your lap, you realize you can kind of ease up because you have such a comfortable lead, and you don't push it. You just kind of run at an easy pace. And that lead evaporates. In fact, your team is now behind, and the third and the fourth runners have to run extra hard just to make up that distance. They do make up the distance, and they cross the finish line first, and your team wins. Gold medal. As you're standing on the platform, all four of you receive the gold medal. It's a little difficult to appreciate it fully, isn't it? Because you know you didn't give your all, and your teammates know that you didn't give your all, and the coach probably knows that you didn't give your all because he's seen you run better. And so you receive reward, but it's really difficult to fully enjoy it. Your capacity for enjoyment is not quite full because you didn't give all. Or imagine that you are uh, in a group project in school 
which, which I hate. I hate group projects, you know, <laughs> because uh, some members really work hard and some don't work hard. And what I've discovered, though, is that all of life is group project, right? <laughs> They're in a group project and you've got some really smart people. And they carry the load, and you, you do your part, but it's not really that good. You turn it in to the coordinator of your group, and he sees that work, and he sees that it's subpar. And so he redoes everything that you've done, turns it into the professor, and your group gets an A. A little difficult to fully appreciate that A you've received. Why? Because you didn't give all. And when we give all, our capacity to appreciate God, he stretches it, he expands it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it may be that those of us who have said, you know, I'm I'm going to live the way that God says life works, will have a greater capacity to really appreciate who God is. Just as Jesus promised, those who have my commandments and keep them, I will disclose more of myself to them. They'll have a greater understanding and appreciation for all that I am. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus ends with two more beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, chapter 5, verse 9, because they will be called sons of God. In Hebrew, thought to be a son of something was to bear the likeness or the characteristics of that thing. To be sons of God and to be daughters of God means to bear the characteristics of God, to be like God. Just as in all of these beatitudes, this is what God is like. And when we have these qualities in our lives, we are sons and daughters of God. We are like God. God is a peacemaker. Mankind is at war with him. And he reaches down to reconcile, to restore that relationship, to make peace. Not blessed are the peace lovers. Those who want no conflict. But blessed are those who are willing to step into conflict. They themselves are at peace with God, but also they are reconciling others to one another. And they're reconciling themselves to one another. They're forgiving. They're not taking up the offense. They're teaching others to live in light of eternity. To live for reward. To live as God says life works. Rather than the moment of the conflict. They're doing that hard work of reconciliation because that is what God does. God is a peacemaking God. God is a reconciling God. And so, blessed, full, and rich are those who make peace. Is your life one that is making peace with others, or is there conflict that constantly follows you? You're always picking up the offense, or you're always stirring up the offense with others, or are you one who makes peace? This is what God does. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then the final beatitude, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. With me in chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You're not persecuted because of sin, but because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a great conclusion of the Beatitudes, because if we choose to live the way that God says, life works. The world is not going to look upon us favorably. Because this value system is so completely contrary to what the world thinks. 
The world says, blessed are the rich. Because they have no problems. Life is at ease. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who are happy, not blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are strong and powerful and can conquer their enemies. They're in control. Not blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. In in Luke's version of one of Jesus' sermons, Luke chapter 6, he says, when you're persecuted, what I want you to do is leap for joy. Can you imagine? Christians all around town jumping up and down. What's up with that? Well, persecution is broken out, so they're jumping. They're leaping. They're so happy. That is so contrary to the way that the world thinks. But it's evidence when we are persecuted that we're actually living the way that God says life works. That's evidence because we're living contrary to the world's value system. It's evidence that we believe God, that the way he says life works is actually the way that life works, and we trust him. And so we're willing to put up with persecution. And in our culture, it may not mean being put to death. It may not mean be being imprisoned, but it might mean rejection from friends, rejection from family members. It might mean loss of a promotion. It may mean a variety of social things in our culture. Because we align ourselves so fully with Jesus Christ, we don't fit completely in the culture because we're living for the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. These are kingdom values, and they're different from the world's values. Do you believe Jesus? Do you trust him so fully that you're willing to say, yeah, blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who are meek, who don't retaliate when they're wrong so that they can show the way that Jesus responds as the lamb that was led to the slaughter. Blessed are those who value others' eternity more than their personal rights now. Blessed are the pure in heart who really want to see more of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a very different way of thinking. When the disciples first heard it, I guarantee you, it completely turned their world upside down. They wanted to be a part of the kingdom, but I don't think they were quite ready for the way that Jesus described it. And I think sometimes we're not either. We have different expectations. But when we're confronted with Jesus' words in the sermon, Do we trust him? Do we believe him? Yeah, Jesus, I believe you. That's the way that life works. As we close, I'd like for us to take a few moments and just silently ask the Lord to examine your heart. Are you you trusting him that this is the life that is full and satisfying and complete? And if not, ask the Lord just to change your mind, to see life the way that he sees it. Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you want us to have the best. That you want us to have lives that are, are rich and full and satisfying. You sent Jesus that we would have life and that we would have life that is abundant and full. I thank you, Father, for instructing Jesus to tell us how that works. And I pray that we would listen to the voice of Jesus rather than the voice of our culture. That we would live in light of eternity, in light of your truth. And that as a result, we would respond to others differently as well. We would respond with mercy and compassion and meekness. And even when the world ridicules us for this, 
that we would see that our reward is with you, guarded, kept, secure. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will not be disappointed. Father, we trust you and we live for that day when we will see you. Thank you for giving us Jesus who has made all of this possible. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. And let me remind you to uh, pray, pray for your pastor Blake. He's having a surgery on his eye this week. Pray for restoration of his sight. Have a great week.